Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. If you're new, welcome. If not, welcome back. We are uh, continuing our Revelation series today by looking at Jesus' letter to Sardis, this, the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, to catch up real quick, you can watch our playlist on our YouTube channel or listen to the audio uh, of our podcast. You can find that on our website. And what we're going to deal with today is this strain, this kind of tug of war that's been present in these letters. And honestly, it's been around for every Christian church, every community uh, since churches began. And it's this. How can we live in the world and reach the world for Christ, but not become corrupted by the world? Because Christianity was not ever supposed to be about a group of followers who kind of lock themselves away, cloister themselves off, and hide themselves away from the world. It was always about a group of people who would embrace the tension of reaching out to the community around them. And doing that while at the same time not engaging in the sinful practices of the community around them. And that's hard to do. And side note, if you don't like the word sin, maybe you could just say destructive behaviors or actions that either hurt you or others. Whether that's physically, verbally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Um, and what we're going to see is you can't reach the world for Christ if you're exactly like the world. And neither can you reach the world for Jesus if you're not willing to meet people where they're at. What we see in the Gospels is that Jesus did both. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it really well. He says, God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. What we find repulsive in their opposition to God and what we shrink back from with pain and hostility, namely real human beings, the real world, this is for God the ground of unfathomable love. I think that sums it up pretty well. So we're going to be talking about that tension today. All right, before we jump into the passage, I want to give you some background first, and that's going to help us understand what's going on behind the scenes more fully. Uh, we have to take a look at the context of the city of Sardis and what kind of the, what I call the view from the curb looked like for the Christians who were living there in the first century. Sardis had been around for centuries when Revelation had been written. It had been a military and political and economic center, and it still was at this time. Historians believe that Sardis was even the first place where coins were minted. Uh, and there were many different empires, the Lydians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Roman Empire. They had all come, they had used Sardis as a key military and, and political hub. And the reason for this was because it was located inland from the coast, in this kind of protected hilly region that was right, it was nestled right in between this giant plain. And the city was situated in a way that you could see an army coming from way far away. And if an army was coming, everybody could climb into this citadel that was built up on the top of the hill in the city to escape and fight back. It was like the high part. And that high part of an ancient city, of any ancient city back then, was called the Acropolis. And Sardis had one. And you can see how fortified and steep it is. It'd be like the hill that the Robinson family retreats to fight from when the pirates attack them in the movie Swiss Family Robinson. Or when King Theoden leads his people to escape from Saruman's armies um, uh, for protection in Helm's Deep in uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Two Towers. So this Acropolis at Sardis was nicknamed by people the strongest place in the world. But despite that, there were a few times where the city was actually conquered. Way back in the 6th century BC, the Persians attacked, and they found everyone asleep. And then 300 years later, the Seleucids showed up, and the same thing happened. 
So at the time of the writing of Revelation, everyone who lived there, they knew these history stories. And then on the other side of the city, from the Acropolis, there was this other hillside called the Necropolis, and it was a hillside covered with tombs. And the flatlands all around Sardis had these burial mounds as well, because for hundreds of years, all these important and wealthy people from the city were buried there. Well, the last thing to know about Sardis is all about this goddess who was worshipped there. Her name was Sibylle, and her temple was located right in between the necropolis and the acropolis, and she was the goddess of the mountains and the city walls, and she was also a fertility goddess. So, in fact, the goddess Sibylle is often, she's kind of this unique uh, goddess in the Roman pantheon because she's pretty ancient, and there's a lot of pretty crazy mythos surrounding her history. But she was pretty popular with the people of Sardis, who were in between these mountains, and when the people worshipped her, it was very unique, and it was also pretty disturbing. Because during the annual festival for Sibylle, which lasted about 40 days each year, people would get very drunk, not unlike the festival for Dionysus and Pergamum that we talked about a few weeks ago, but it was actually a lot worse, because some of the men would get worked up into a frenzy uh, while they were drunk, and they would actually castrate themselves, and then offer that as an offering to Sibylle. She... This was because in some of the mythology um, for her, she, she loved this guy named Addis. She showed up at his wedding, went crazy, which then in turn drove him crazy, and he runs away and he castrates himself. And there are a lot of other versions of this story. Some are not as bad, some are way worse. They always end up with this guy castrating himself. And even the Roman authorities thought that was a bit much, and they discouraged that form of worship. So as a compromise, the worship of Sibylle shifted a bit, and instead of a ton of guys doing this, only a handful of people would, and then everyone else would wear these light-colored robes, and they would try to get the blood from these other guys' sacrifice on their robes as a form of worship. So they could still worship Sibylle without what are called the long-term side effects, and this was all done with drunkenness and orgies and a lot of other crazy stuff going on. So... Imagine these Christians that are living in this environment and they're trying to live with hope and holiness in the midst of all of this. Now, let's read the letter from Revelation to the church at Sardis, starting in Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds and you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we see here that Jesus gives himself the titles again. One of the titles that he gives himself is the one who holds uh, seven spirits, which can also be translated uh, as the sevenfold Spirit of God. And he's also holding these seven stars. And a few weeks ago, we talked about how the sevenfold Spirit is actually the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's role is to empower the life of the believer. So Jesus is saying he holds absolute power uh, of God's Holy Spirit. And then the seven stars were a symbol that the Roman emperors used for authority. And we've talked about that before. So Jesus is also saying he is the true 
wielder of all authority. And when you combine those images, Jesus is saying, I hold all authority and all power. And then Jesus mentions death and life. And he says to them, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. AKA, you live in the literal city of the dead, a city that is literally surrounded by tombs. And he's basically saying this, death is starting to seep into your spiritual lives. You're being lazy and complacent. You've stopped engaging with your community. Maybe they've just decided to hunker down and try not to draw too much attention to themselves. Maybe they've gotten discouraged. Maybe they're afraid, you know, or they've decided it's not worth the effort to reach out to their community. We don't know for sure, you know. Uh, we know they were persecuted, so maybe they were afraid. Maybe like many Christians today, they weren't being told that being a follower of Jesus uh, is, is hard. It's not easy. I love, I love G.K. Chesterton's quote uh, about this. He says, Jesus promised his disciples three things, uh, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Uh, but for some reason, the Christians in Sardis had lost all their inertia. They had no forward motion. Basically, they're just adrift. And Jesus is saying, your faith is growing cold like a corpse. And he tells them to wake up and strengthen themselves, which is an obvious reference to the reputation of Sardis being sacked twice by invaders when her defenders were asleep. They had been so complacent that they got defeated without a fight twice. They thought they were impregnable in their fortress, so they fell asleep. And Jesus is saying, wake up. Don't follow in the footsteps of the history of the very city that you live in. Jesus reminds them, uh, reminds this church of the true spiritual reality. Jesus is going to return one day. And we don't know exactly when, but he's saying, don't go complacent and get caught off guard. Wake up and work to strengthen your faith. His actual words in the letter are, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And then he says, remember therefore what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you don't wake up, I will come to you like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I think, honestly, the, probably the most depressing part of that sentence is the phrase of those sentences is the phrase, I found your deeds unfinished. Because it's so easy to start well, to start strong, and then just kind of fade and lose steam. You begin with excitement and a fire in your belly when you come to Christ, and then you just kind of sink and evaporate is what he's saying. And Jesus is saying, hey, Sardis Church, hey, West Seattle Christian Church, it doesn't matter how you start, it matters how you finish. What if Jesus comes back and finds our deeds unfinished? And we're like, well, Lord, you see, we're just really busy. It, it's not that easy, you know. We just took a little bit of a break and backed off serving our community. My neighbors just don't want to hang out, let alone hear anything I have to say. You know, Jesus, we've just been a bit discouraged. So we thought maybe the best thing we could do was to circle the wagons or something. Is that going to work? No. Jesus says, remember what it was like when you first realized how amazing the grace of God is. Remember how it felt. Remember the truth of the good news of Jesus. Hold it fast. Hang on to it. You know, sailors used to get, get the words hold fast tattooed across their fingers to remind them to make fast the line, to hold the sails even in the midst of the storm. And Jesus reminds them to repent which simply means to return to the right path when you've gotten off course. Jesus says, return to that passion and that state of mind and hold on to it. Hang on. 
But you might be thinking, what reason do we have to hold fast and repent? Well, he gives us that reason in verses 4 and 5. He says there, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. This is Jesus making an obvious reference to the festival and worship of Sibylle that we've talked about before, where people had that horrific practice uh, and try, they were going around trying to get some of that blood from that sacrifice on their robes. And Jesus says, there are some in Sardis who have not stained their clothes. And at first, when you hear that, you think Jesus is probably talking about these Christians. And in part, he is. But he's also talking about some of these non-Christians, people who are not yet believers, who haven't participated in that. He's reminding them that there are people in their city who are ready to hear the good news of the gospel. They just need to wake up and live and tell them about it. He's also saying there are probably even some people participating in the cult of Sibylle and other idol worship, and they're realizing, I don't really like this. This is actually this is pretty gross, and they're starting to feel disgusted. They are ready to hear about Jesus. He's saying, wake up and look around. There are people who haven't stained their clothes. And this means that at the very least, they're probably ready to listen. So how often are we too busy or upset or mad or disgusted by the sin of the culture around us that we've stopped noticing those in the culture who are also fed up and ready to hear what Jesus has to offer? We live in a fast culture that distracts us and tempts us to compromise. But what we learn from this letter is that any opportunity to compromise is at the same time an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus and reach out. There are lots of opportunities around us if we're awake to see them. The Christians in Sardis had plenty of opportunities, but had retreated. They had gone to this hiding place and become complacent. And Jesus calls them on it. He calls us on it too. What has Jesus saved you from? Maybe you've dealt with some kind of sin for a long time in your life and you, you're approached by a friend who wants to invite you into a situation where you'd be tempted to engage in the behavior of that sin, something that's either destructive to you or to others in some way. Uh, in that moment, you have the choice to be complacent or to compromise, but you also have the ability and the opportunity to decline and explain why you don't do that anymore. And maybe through that explanation, your reasoning might speak to that person. You have countless opportunities to tell people and show people how you've changed because of Jesus. You don't respond to certain things the way you used to. And they can see that change in the way you live, in your lifestyle. All of this is tied to this revelation that Jesus has all authority and all power and that he's returning again. And behind the scenes, he's always working in people's hearts, preparing them to hear his message of love and grace. And our job is to realize this and to wake up and be faithful in reaching out. So let's not grow complacent because Jesus is coming back. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it really well. The church is, is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. We need to be reminded that God is working so that we don't stop the work of reaching out. The Christians in Sardis, I think they got the message. We, we don't know 
uh, or have any uh, specific record of any church buildings during the time Revelation was written, but we do have some record of some that were built shortly after that, around the 3rd and 4th century, um, like this one. It was built not long after the writing of Revelation. If you look at where it's located, it's connected to the actual temple of Sibylle. Does that mean that the Christians here compromised? Or does it mean they were living missionally? Um, some archaeologists believe that this building was placed here strategically by Christians to offer medical aid to those who had participated in the worship of Sibylle, kind of like a mini hospital. I just love that idea that they were using an opportunity to compromise to bear witness and reach out. Well, as we finish this up, I want to take a look at these white robes one more time. Um, uh, he says, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious like them will be dressed in white. I will never blot out that name, blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Jesus will walk with those who are dressed in white. Um, there's this great verse in Isaiah 118 that that reminds me of. It says, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And Jesus is using this powerful image from the Old Testament. These believers used to have clothes that were stained by sin. Some of them literally uh, right? It's, and it's the same for us. Jesus offers a fresh start. And many of you that are listening to this have taken him up on that invitation. You've given your lives over to him. You've been washed clean. But some of you have not yet taken that step. And that's the question. Where are you at today? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you allowed him to wash you clean? None of us are worthy until Jesus makes us worthy. And there's no better moment than right now, today, to take that step if you would like to get in touch with us or with me, come talk to me, call me at the church, email us. We'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to put your trust in Jesus for the first time. But this theme of white robes, it becomes a recurring theme throughout the book of Revelation. Just a few chapters in chapter 7, one of the most powerful mentions of the white robes is right there in verses 9 through 17. It says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, who's Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, this is John, asked John, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, John answered, sir, you know, I think you know what the answer. And he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, which is a quote from Isaiah. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, which is another quote from Isaiah, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And it finishes up with one more quote from Isaiah. He will lead them 
to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It, it, it shows us here people from every nation and language, all dressed in white robes, people that Jesus has saved, and they have all come together to worship him, the Lamb. They've all had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, which is a really conflicting image because unlike the blood that stained the people's robes red in Sardis, the blood of Jesus doesn't stain robes. It removes the stain of sin from their robes. The blood of Jesus has washed their robes clean. We are shown a vision of what it looks like when the lamb then becomes the shepherd, it says at the end of that. And now the people that belong to Jesus are protected and they're safe. In light of all this, this is my prayer for you today. May you remember and regain the excitement and passion of what Jesus has done for you. May that renewed passion shake you out of a dead sleep of complacency and remind you of your mission. May you wake up and substitute every opportunity for compromise with an opportunity to bear witness and reach out. And may you remember and pay attention because there are people all around you that you encounter every day who are ready to hear the good news, people who need a fresh start. May you invite them to know Jesus so that they can wash their sins away. Let's reach out with the love of Jesus to a world that's dying for it. I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.